To the book of Genesis, I direct your attention this morning after a brief hiatus last week. We're going back to Genesis and picking up where we left off last time in the 31st chapter at the 22nd verse. So to Genesis chapter 31, please, and to the 22nd verse, and we'll read from there through the end of the chapter. As you are turning, let me remind you where we've come in this history, because this passage this morning brings us to an end of sorts of a, of a chapter in the life of Jacob, albeit a long one, a couple of decades. You'll remember that when we first met Jacob, we found him as an infant coming from his mother, Rebekah, grasping, grasping at the heel of his older uh, twin brother, Esau. So Jacob emerged from the womb, and so Jacob lived his life, grasping. He was able, you remember, to grasp his brother Esau's birthright by playing upon Esau's appetite, holding uh, the red stew until uh, Esau should hand it over. And then Jacob makes good on that deal by, at his mother's behest, deceiving his own father Jake, uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing that uh, should have gone to his older brother Esau. You remember the ruse, making food for Isaac uh, and bringing it to his father, uh, although Isaac had expected to receive it from the hand of Esau, at which time he had promised he would also bless Esau. Instead, Jacob brings the food to his father, his blind father, dressed in Esau's clothing, covered on neck and arms by the hides of young goats to simulate the hairy feeling of Esau's body, and so deceiving his father into blessing him, that is Jacob, and thereby taking it away from Esau. Esau's anger, of course, burns against Jacob, and for this, and he breathes murder after his younger brother, so that Rebekah, the mother of the two, sends Jacob off to her brother, Laban, Jacob's uncle, the Aramean, with the uh, secondary purpose of finding a wife, the primary reason we understand being to save Jacob's skin from his brother Esau. There he stayed those 20 years with good old Uncle Laban, working seven years first for his younger uh, daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob loved, but uh, then having to serve another seven years because Laban, his uncle, deceived him, deceived Jacob by switching the older and unattractive Leah for Rachel, her sister, under uh, darkness on the first wedding day. Then there were these most recent six years, about which we read last time, the years during which God prospered and blessed Jacob exceedingly and made him a very wealthy man, to the chagrin, of course, and displeasure of Laban and Laban's sons. So now with an eye for the situation and a word from the Lord, Jacob sets off for home, back for Canaan, the promised land. But he does so. He sets his herds toward Canaan and takes his wives and sons and all of their servants, absconding with them while Laban isn't looking. In fact, Laban is a full three days journey away from Jacob and he's busy shearing his sheep 
at the time. And when uh, Jacob sneaks away, concerned no doubt by what a face-to-face -face meeting with Laban would mean, but just such an encounter he will have anyway, as we shall see this morning. It's another long passage, as have been the last uh, few, so I'll be making some stops along the way in the reading and observations and making some applications, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray again for your help, for your guidance and blessing. For coming to your word, we are reminded afresh how helpless we are to understand, to apply, and to be conformed to this word unless your spirit come and teach us and open our hearts to receive it and apply it to our lives, even as we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to seeing that it should form us and shape us, and that having come to your word this morning, we will not leave it the same. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 31, we begin at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything against Jacob or to Jacob, either good or bad. Now that instruction to say nothing either good or bad is an idiomatic way in that language of saying, don't contradict him in any way. It's used a few times in the Bible. In fact, it was used just a few chapters back in Genesis 24. So bear this in mind now, Jacob's God, Yahweh, has come to Laban in a dream and instructed him with stern warning not to contradict Jacob. But that doesn't keep Laban from delivering now one of the fiercest and longest diatribes recorded in Genesis. And you can hear, you can hear the irony literally dripping from Laban's words, even unbeknownst to him, as he castigates Jacob for the very sorts of things he himself has done to his nephew and son-in-law, beginning with the words, what have you done? The very words, ironically, that Jacob had used with Laban when he woke up to find Leah and not Rachel in his bed. We pick up at verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob, now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and with songs? with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you've gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? 
You can imagine how Jacob and his wives, notice, by the way, that Laban calls them his daughters. I say you can imagine how Jacob and Rachel and Leah must have reacted to this, this speech. At first, they must have stood with, with stony face until that zinger about, I would have sent you away with mirth and, and songs, with tambourines and lyres. Then they might have been tempted to laugh at the old man's transparent hypocrisy. Send us away with mirth and songs. <laughs> yeah, right. As if. As if that would ever happen. But amusement on their part would turn to anger when Laban, seeing that his tack wasn't working, switches from the injured father-in-law routine to bully. You have done foolishly, and it's in my power to do you harm. But especially that last accusation wrapped up in a question. Why did you steal my gods? Well, Jacob's heard enough. Verse 31, he answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now let the tension build and the suspense rise. How masterful a narrator we have here in Moses, carried along by the Holy Spirit in this account that keeps us right at the edge of our seats as we watch Laban and his people go from tent to tent to tent, narrowing down and chiseling down his uh, search slowly to the culprit. Will she be found out, even to the surprise of Jacob? And will heads roll? especially the pretty little head of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Verse 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot arise before you, for the way of women is upon me. More deep irony here. Rachel, who has watched her father deceive and deceive so many others by so many different means, now deceives her own father. The deceiver is deceived and in the process uses an excuse based on her menstrual cycle to do it. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found in all of, your of all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. 
Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, the cold of night, and my slept fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house. I've served you fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you... Now, now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob's got some excellent points to make, hasn't he? I could easily show you at great length from the scripture that in God's law, the shepherd is not responsible for what is stolen from the livestock and eaten by predators. Yet Jacob even absorbed those expenses. And despite his labors and the scorching sun and heat, and in the brutal cold, Laban has made every effort to keep his son-in-law, his nephew Jacob, from enjoying the rightful fruits of his labors by changing his wages over and over again. And Laban knows that Jacob has him dead to rights. Not to mention the fact that Laban can still hear in his head ringing the sound of the voice of Jacob's God from last night. Verse 43, then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha but Jacob called it Galid. Basically the same thing in two different languages, two different mother tongues. They both called the place heap of witnesses. Uh, this covenant they refer to now that uh, Jacob really has no need of now, but Laban does, having come to see and experience something of God's power at work in Jacob and the blessing that Jacob's God has poured upon Jacob. Verse 48, Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban's duplicity is almost laughable here. I mean, who made a bigamist out of Jacob to begin with? It was Laban. And here he is telling Jacob not to marry any more wives and calling on God to witness when in fact Laban believes in many, many gods. 
Then, verse 51, Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I've set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, named for God. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Now this passage is virtually bursting with important lessons, lessons about Man, on the one hand, about their wickedness and duplicity of the wicked and about the children of God and the lives that they lead of a constant commixture of sin and righteousness, of motives pure and motives mixed and motives even impure. And on the other hand, lessons about God, his character and his workings, his sovereign providence, both over the very hearts and thoughts, even the dreams of the wicked in every detail, even of the wicked's lives. And every detail, of course, of the lives of his saints. We'll come back to that, by the way, in evening worship tonight. And any one of those paths would prove fruitful this morning by the blessing of God, had we time to follow all of them, but consider with me just one of them. What I consider to be the, the major, the overarching theme of the passage today, which has been sung by us this morning and will be uh, during the supper in a little while, uh, the main thought certainly of the hymns and psalms we've been singing in connection with this text, it is the protection, the protection of God for his pilgrim saints in the world. He is the pilgrim's protector. It is a dangerous journey on which we travel, brothers and sisters, as we make our way to the promised land, to our rest, as the book of Hebrews has it. The evil one, scripture says, prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour and misleading even the elect, says the scripture, if that were possible. The forces that are mounted against you, Christian, the forces that are, are seeking your undoing are great. They are immense. They are terrible, just like they were against Jacob. Imagine what, what it must have been like for for Jacob when he heard the sound of Laban and his men rushing into his camp with all the bravado of an Arab sheik, probably armed to the teeth. With one command, Laban could have struck them down right there, every one of them, before Jacob even had time to think about it. And he was offended enough, and he was powerful enough to do it. Humanly speaking, that is, so how easily Jacob could have been thrown then into a panic, and we think reasonably so, if he had judged the situation only by his 
physical eye. Laban was a real threat. This encounter really, truly, once again pushed the future of God's covenant people to the very edge of destruction. This could have been the end, really. Pushed to the edge like it had been by Abraham in Egypt and then by Isaac when they had by their own lies created a real and terrible threat to the continuance of the covenant in their own generations. This time it was a combination of Jacob's cowardly attempt at escaping Laban by deception combined with the, and exacerbated by, really, uh, Rachel's having stolen the household gods. And here's the sad thing for them and for us. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, the greatest threat to our pilgrimage comes not from without, but from within, not from enemies outside of ourselves, but from our own foolishness, from our own sin, from the threats that come from within, even from our own hearts. The devil and the world, yes, they have teamed up and they are pressing hard to distract you and lead you astray from pilgrimage, but let alone the devil and the world, your own flesh rises up against you and seeks to take you and would if you but give it a nod. I say the dangers, the enemies are great, immense, really, without and within, which is why you and I must have a God who is greater and who is indeed greater, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this passage makes that point wonderfully and remarkably, even ironically. It's, it's, it's poetic, really. I don't know if you caught it. I didn't at first. The great contrast in this passage that is drawn between our God, the God of Jacob, the fear of Isaac, as Jacob calls him, and all the other gods of the world. In the case of Laban, the gods are called teraphim. And the word, it's been said, comes from the Syrian word to inquire. And thus it's been said that the reason Rachel took the teraphim away from her father's house was to keep Laban from inquiring about Jacob and his wife's whereabouts. Other scriptures confirm that indeed the people were said to have sought oracles from these teraphim or gods. Others believe the reason that Rachel took the teraphim from her, house, from her father's house was that she was still under the impression that she might gain some sort of favor from those gods and some sort of fertility favor, of course, so that she would have uh, more children. If so, we are deeply disappointed by Rachel's behavior. But uh, it doesn't take but a couple of minutes before we realize that um, we too have our own and various idolatries going on in our own lives with which we must do battle every day. In many, or if not most of those cases, we will be doing battle to the very day of our death. 
Either way, the ironic thing is that while God, the true God of Jacob, comes to Laban in a dream and solemnly warns him about harassing Jacob, now that same Laban is feeling through the tent camps, uh, the camp tents, feeling through the luggage. For what? For his gods. Now, here, here he hears God's voice speaking to him, and yet his own gods couldn't even hear him calling to them to tell him where they were, where they were hiding, even when he was standing right next to them in Rachel's tent. And while he couldn't even take care of his own gods, God was taking care of Jacob. And oh, here is something that, that would not have been lost on the Israelites who first heard this passage read to them by Moses in the wilderness. Rachel hides Laban's gods under her skirts while she's having her period. The Israelites would not have failed to see the deep, deep irony of this. That here is Rachel in a state that they would call unclean, sitting right on the gods and virtually using them as menstrual rags. Now, what does that tell you about the teraphim? This is God poking fun in his own scripture of those rival gods. He's running this entire show. God's governing every move of Laban's hands through the luggage and around the tents while Laban's gods are unclean and as helpless as they can be under the saddle of a woman in the way of women. Yet Laban still insists on seeking out these worthless gods and probably in the end goes back home and makes some more, carves some more out of wood and stone and metal and sets them up and worships them. They're helpless, they're worthless. They cannot hear, they cannot see, they cannot speak, but the voice of God, the one true God is heard and it causes trembling. And it turns hearts, even wicked hearts, as he pleases, whichever way. And this God is everywhere, all the time, at every point in his universe. And particularly, says the scripture, he is with you. He is with his people. He goes before you. He goes behind you. He goes with you to provide for you, to protect you always, ever and anon. It's a constant theme in the history of Jacob as well as of the patriarchs, indeed of all the saints. I will be with you or, or I am with you. He told Jacob, you remember as much back in 28, verse 5, when he met Jacob at Bethel and appeared to him there. And here in this chapter, no less than four times, Jacob draws upon that promise. He even reminds Laban to his face in verse 42, that the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac has been on his side 
has kept him safe. And that same note will be struck over and over and over in Jacob's life until he passes that blessing down to Joseph, his son, in the land of Egypt. And it is the same blessing that will be known by Israel's descendants as they make their way in pilgrimage to the promised land and the promise in which they will have to depend come wind, come weather. That God is with them. And he most certainly was. And he most certainly is. Just as he was with them by cloud in the day and by pillar of fire at night, so he is with you always and in everything. It's the same promise on which you must make your pilgrimage today. Enemies all around, enemies without, enemies within. Could you see it? Could your eyes be open to the spiritual battle that wages around you? You would tremble at the sight. There are enemies always about us. And what is more frightening within us, but God is right there. It doesn't mean that terrible things aren't going to happen to his saints from time to time. Perhaps you read this week of the gang rape of two Christian women in India by Hindus there while their husbands tried to intervene and were beaten. There are terrible, terrible trials for God's pilgrims to go through along the way and we would never make light of any of them. But we will remember this, that our God reigns. And he reigns over it all. And nothing but nothing can come to us apart from his mighty and sovereign power moving and directing all things, even his own enemies and ours, for his glory and for our ultimate good. And what is more, as we heard prayed by Elder Thomas this morning, there is no enemy of his, and there is no enemy of ours, of the church, that will not either bend the knee to him or be smashed to pieces by his iron scepter. Which is why he tells us to never be afraid of those who can harm the body, but to fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Or as I read somewhere, God's smiles are the best support under man's frowns. If we walk in the light of his countenance, we need not fear what man can do to us. Or as the psalmist has it, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. 
Through the night of doubt and sorrow, onward goes the pilgrim band, singing songs of expectation, marching to the promised land. Clear before us through the darkness gleams and burns the guiding light. Brother clasps the hand of brother, stepping fearless through the night. Onward, therefore, pilgrim brother, onward with the cross your aid. Bear its shame. Fight its battle till you rest beneath its shade. Soon shall come the great awakening, soon the rending of the tomb, then the scattering of all shadows and the end of toil and gloom. Amen.